Good news. It's good news. There's nothing better than God. There's nothing better than the Lord. I, uh, I've shared this story before, but it really sticks with me um, because I'm a nerd. And uh, I like books, and I like reading books, and uh, I like writing stuff. I like writing out my sermons. I like, I wrote, loved writing my PhD dissertation, and you know, I like that kind of stuff. And and one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Thomas Aquinas, who I have quoted numerous times, um, wrote what may be considered the most profound theological treatise in the history of the church in the last 2,000 years. It's called the Summa Theologiae. It's insane. I Literally, I've read many, many things over the years. It is the most difficult, uh, intellectually challenging, and stimulating thing I've ever, ever read. And at the end of his life, Thomas had a vision. We don't know exactly of what, but some sort of vision of the presence of God, and he refused to finish the Summa, and his, his, his friends, his, his colleagues, his, his students, his mentors said, Thomas, finish, finish your great work. He said, it's all straw compared to what I've seen. I mean, it's all straw. It's nothing. It's, it's nothing compared to the Lord. Compared to the presence and the power and the goodness of God, what we consider valuable and worthy um, is nothing. It really is. And, uh, I want to convince you of that today. That's not the specific theme of the message, but it is the theme of almost every message to remind us there's nothing better than him. Amen? Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, will you turn with me to John 16, verses 1 through 6. Um, I want to show you a picture of a guy named Ian. Um, this is Ian. And uh, Ian... Grew up, um, and I'm, I'm friends with Ian on social media, but I'm not like friend friends with him. Um, and he grew up hearing uh, the Bible. He grew up in a Christian home, maybe like many of us are growing up in or have grown up in. Hearing Bible stories, like my kids and me, like we know the Bible stories and singing Christian songs. And he grew up with all of that. And uh, as he grew and as he began to grow intellectually, and he began to have some questions. And uh, he found that the, the answers that his particular church was giving him weren't really answering those questions. He said, the Christian tradition I grew up in, for all the wonderful things it gave me, was not prepared for a generation of kids with access to high-speed internet, the answers given in church seemed shallow compared to the legitimate critiques that were a Google search or a YouTube video click away. And he began finding books and YouTube videos and podcasts that questioned some of the basic things he'd been taught about the Christian faith. And he began a process of what some have called deconstruction. Taking his faith and taking it apart. Piece by piece. The faith of his childhood, the faith of his youth. Until he had nothing left. Um, <clears throat> Ian, Ian 
stumbled or what scripture sometimes calls fell away. He fell away. He fell away from the faith. He fell away from Jesus. And this is a danger that is real and it's serious. I have friends, um, both in ministry and outside of ministry, who have basically abandoned the gospel for some sort of deconstructed something or other. The danger's real. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I've got kids, and it terrifies me to think that, that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I worry about stuff for my kids. But what I worry about more than anything is that they won't follow Jesus. And the danger is real. And Jesus knows it's real. And it's serious. And Jesus knows it's serious. And that's why on the night before he went to the cross, when we've been studying this last night of Jesus with his friends and his followers, and he's, he's spending the evening with them. And he's, remember, he started the evening by washing their feet and kind of setting the tone of what uh, servant-hearted love looks like. And, and he, washed, he washed their feet. And, and, and then he says, as I've done for you, you should do for one another, love one another. And then he begins to share his heart. He begins to sh- prepare them for the fact that he's going to be leaving. He's going to be departing and, and that they're going to be uh, left without his physical presence. And as he moves through this conversation, he wants to prepare them for their purpose, for his purpose for them. He wants to prepare them for the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. He wants to protect them from the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. I don't know if you've ever thought, if, if you are anything um, like me, you may do what they call catastrophizing. This is a psychological term. I don't know if you know what catastrophizing means. It means you think of worst-case scenarios. You think of worst case scenarios. Maybe you maybe you don't do that. You're you're not a you're not a worrier. You don't get anxious or whatever. But maybe you do. All of us, if we're not one, are either married to one or the child or the parent of one of these types of people, right? What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Um, and you think about that. Jesus is preparing his disciples and protecting them from, and wants to protect them from, and he wants to protect you from the worst thing that could possibly happen. So we see here in John 16, 1 through 6, Jesus say, um, I think we got the scripture here. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet, because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into this. Father, in Jesus' name, by your spirit, I pray that you would help us uh, to learn, to learn in this passage 
uh, what you want us to learn. Holy Spirit, that you would have freedom to speak through your word, that you would have freedom to edit me. You know, I've prepared this message, got lots of stuff that I think you want me to say and prayerfully prepared. But Lord, if you need to edit me, I pray you you would do that, that I would say what I need to say and that you would apply this to the hearts of your people to build them up, to protect them from the worst thing that could possibly happen, and that is falling away from Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would keep us by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Amen. What's the worst that could possibly happen? We see that in verse 1. What is the worst that could happen? It's falling away from Jesus. Falling away from Jesus is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you or to anyone you love. The worst case scenario is that someone hears the gospel and either rejects it or seems to accept it and then rejects it. And we all know people who have been in these scenarios. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. The word here for stumbling means to be scandalized or offended. Earlier in John's story of the life of Jesus, remember he told the story of Jesus feeding the, the, the crowd and saying that he is the bread of life. And he says, and he, he starts saying stuff that sounds pretty weird. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like, whoa, what's, what's going on? Um, and, and Jesus says this in John 6, 60 and 61. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? The word here for offend, this is the same word that we see back in our text in John 16. Does this cause you to stumble? Does this trip you up? Does this push you over the edge? It's summer, right? So we're out in our pool a lot. And I stand on the edge of the pool, and my children love to make me offended, i.e. to go over the edge, (laughs) to cause me to stumble, to cause me to fall into the pool, to push me into the pool. Jesus says, does this cause you to stumble? Does this make you slip over the edge, away from me, away from following me? In the end, every person, every person will either stand on Jesus as the rock that supports them and sustains them, or they will stumble over Jesus. At the end of your life, you will have lived a life that either fundamentally stood on Jesus or stumbled over him. Uh, 1 Corinthians says, um, 123 says, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. At the end of... However many days God gives you in his grace, you will either have stood on Jesus or stumbled over Jesus. One of the most difficult passages in the entire scripture is in Hebrews 6. And maybe you've never wrestled with this. And if if you haven't, it's simply because you've never read it. Because it's really hard. 
um, we sometimes call these the warning passages. Hebrews 6 says this, it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who shared in the heaven and tasted in the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God, holding him up to contempt. What is this saying? It's saying if you become a Christian and then say you're not a Christian anymore, you're in a very, very bad spot. That's what this is saying. The worst that could possibly happen is following, falling away from Jesus. It's worse, we see in verse 2, it's worse than being alone. Look what he says in verse 2. Falling away is worse than being alone. They will ban you from the synagogues. Now, that, that literally means they will excommunicate you. Now, <clears throat> excommunication is a biblical practice. Church discipline is a biblical practice. Matthew 18, we see if someone's in sin, you go to them and you confront them. If they repent, then it's over. You know, we all sin, we all repent, and stuff happens. If they don't, then you bring a friend or two and you talk to them. And if they repent, then it's over. They, they are walking in renewal. But if they still don't repent, then you tell the church, and you bring it before the body, and the body says, hey, man, you're like really messing up. Like, follow Jesus. And then if the church doesn't get the ear of the person, they still don't repent. Then the scripture says, Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. That is, excommunicate them from the fellowship. Now, in our day and age, that doesn't really, people are like, that's not, not a great thing. But it's like, they'll just say, oh, I don't care. I'll go to the church down the street. But in this time, to be banned from the synagogue, that was like completely being completely cut off from family, friends, culture, and community. This was somebody who was, was totally alone. He said, they'll ban you from the synagogues. You will be alone. Now, we don't experience this um, in our context. I mean... I don't know, maybe you've got, we, we, we've got family who are not believers. My parents became Christians on the, the, the tail end of the Jesus movement back in the early 80s. And I was, they led me to Christ when I was very, very young. Uh, they'd grown up kind of nominally Christian. And, but, they, but like some of our, a lot of our family um, were not, are not believers and still not believers. And, and they're kind of like, their view is like, they kind of like Jeff and Cece, my parents and our family got religious. They're very religious now. That was kind of like what, how, they, how they said it. And maybe you have family who say that about you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just, they, they're, they're our really religious person, right? Um, but I don't think many of us, now maybe this, is, this has happened to you. And if so, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. And we want to be a church family who embraces one another and loves one another. But I don't think many po- folks in our context experience like families separating and refusing to talk to one another because of of religious differences. Sometimes it happens, but not often. Now, compare that to someone in a Muslim context who comes to Christ. They lose everything. They lose everything. They lose everything. And sometimes their family not only says, we don't want anything to do with you, but actually will report them have them imprisoned, and even worse. But Jesus says they'll ban you from the synagogues, but that's not worse than falling away from me. Falling away from Jesus is worse than being alone. 
Back in the 300s, there was a huge debate about the doctrine of the Trinity. In the church calendar, uh, today is actually Trinity Sunday. Um, it, and, you know, some of you know what that means, some of you don't. But it's like after Easter, then there's, you know, Pente- uh, Tide, and then there's Pentecost, Ascension, uh, Trinity Sunday. There was this huge debate about the Trinity. And there was a guy named Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus was a created being. He was awesome. He was amazing. He was like the LeBron James of like beings, but he wasn't God like the Father was God. This guy's name was Arius. Well, that, the problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. He is, he is God who has become and come in human flesh. He is the true eternal son of the Father. And this, this guy's teaching became really popular so that it began to infiltrate the church. And there was one guy. This, little, this guy's name was Athanasius. Athanasius was from Alexandria in modern-day Egypt in Africa. And they called Athanasius the black dwarf because he was small and dark-skinned. But Athanasius, Athanasius was small in stature, but he was big in heart and conviction. And he stood against the teaching of Arius and those who followed Arius' teaching and says, no, 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 Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. So that at one point... There was a phrase that was floating around, and we still remember today, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because it's better to be with Jesus and have everyone else abandon you. Falling away from Jesus is worse than being alone. And I know some of you, some of you are in seasons of loneliness. And God, God designed us for community. And that's why the church, we believe as a church that we need to be an authentic community, a community that really rallies around one another. After church tonight, if you want to, we're all, anyone who wants to, we're going to go to Panera Bread and you can buy overpriced hospital food, but it's, you know, fine. Like, that was a joke, right? It really, I mean, I like Panera just fine, but we're going to go to Panera and we're going to lean into community and just enjoy being together. Um, Some of you are going through seasons of intense loneliness, but let me tell you this. If you have Jesus, the loneliness is is temporary, but Jesus is forever. Falling away next is worse than being killed. Falling away is worse than being killed. Look what Jesus tells the disciples here. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. So they're ignorant of the truth of God, and so they think that killing people who follow Jesus is actually pleasing to God. I can think of a very famous example of this. He wrote a lot of the Bible. Saul of Tarsus. He made his reputation by persecuting, that the word persecute means literally to follow after or pursue, pursuing Christians arresting them, imprisoning them, or even executing them until Jesus got a hold of them. Similarly, in parts of the world today, there are religious groups that consider the death of Christians to be a righteous and holy thing. There are times when people will think that pushing the people of God to the margin 
is giving service to God. And we see this happen literally even today. Not here. Not, not in our context. You know, we, we talk about uh, persecution. Persecution is real and it comes in, in different forms. But, but thank God we don't suffer the danger of our lives for following Jesus in our context. We may, we, may, we may have other dangers, but we don't suffer in that way. But in many places in the world, that's not the case. People will, they take their life in their hands when they follow Jesus. Better said, they put their life in Jesus's hands and they may very well lose it. But falling away is worse than being killed. It's better to lose your life than to lose Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10, 1 through 3, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's terrifying, a terrifying phrase. A zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Falling away from Jesus is worse than being alone. It's worse than being killed. And finally, it's worse than being without Jesus physically. It's worse than being without Jesus physically. Jesus says in verses 4 through 6 here, I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're saying, he's telling them he's leaving, and they're, you know, they're bummed. This is their teacher. This is their leader. This is their Lord. But he's, he, wanting, he wants to prepare them, and he wants to protect them, that even when... He is physically absent. They must still follow him. I love what Mickey Klink says. He says, the disciples have been living with Christ. What they need instruction on now is how to live in Christ. Oh, that's so comforting, isn't it? Because that's where we live. We don't live with Christ. We don't live with Jesus in the flesh. I've never seen him. And if you have, I mean, praise God. Um, but maybe you just had a bad burrito, you know. Maybe you have seen him. And praise God if that was real. But I've never seen him and I've never seen him physically. We live here. We live in Christ. We live in a place where we follow a leader we cannot physically see. We follow him by faith, not by sight. We walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. We don't see Jesus physically. We see him with the eyes of faith. We see him in a spiritual sense. If someone asked me, have you seen Jesus? I would say yes, not because I've seen him physically, but because the eyes of my heart have been open and I have seen the reality of Jesus just like I have seen the reality of the love that Laura and I have for one another. Have I ever seen that love? I can't see love. Love is not a tangible thing, but I have seen it. I've seen Jesus. 
but not physically. We live now not with Christ physically, but in Christ. We walk by faith and not by sight. Falling away from Jesus is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone you love. It's worse than being alone. It's worse than being killed. It's worse than losing your life. It's worse than losing Jesus and his physical presence. Back to Ian. Ian deconstructed his faith. Ian uh, listened to some bad podcasts and uh, watched some bad YouTube videos. Stopped believing. But as he looked at the ruins of what had been his faith, he felt like he felt like a kid who had built their favorite Lego kit. That you know, what, what for for me when I was a kid, I had this big gray Lego castle. Like our kids, we love Lego, and and the, he felt like a, a kid who had taken this thing apart, and no one had given him instructions on how to put it back together. And all he had were the broken pieces sitting around him. In his own words, he says this. He says, I ran into a problem. As I kept listening and reading, I realized I didn't have the tools to rebuild. And I wasn't receiving any from these voices. Every belief I held had been neatly disassembled and lay bare on the floor for examination. But there was no guidance for putting something back together. As the liturgist, this was a podcast you listened to, journeys progressed, they became increasingly lockstep with the progressive platform of the political left. It reminded me of the conformity of conservative Christians to whatever the Republican Party told them to believe. When the 2016 election ended, I had a strange experience. He said, I shared some concerns for the country, but I also saw progressives using the same litmus tests that the conservative evangelicals of my youth had used now just on the other side of the aisle. Now, if you held a historic Christian sexual ethic, you were considered a bigot. If you considered abortion morally wrong, you were anti-woman. Listen to this. They had become just as fundamentalist as the fundamentalists they despised. Jesus came. He picked Ian up. He stood him back up. And he said, come follow me again. And Ian got up and he followed Jesus. Because a lot of times prodigals return home. So, sorry, super, super uplifting message for your Memorial Day weekend, right? So what now? What now? What are you going to do with this? What do you do with this? What do we do with this? Number one, follow Jesus. You know, as a pastor, sometimes I get the question if someone asks, you know, can a Christian commit the unforgivable sin? And, and I say no, a Christian can't for, commit the unforgivable sin. And standard answer, which I think is the right one, is that a Christian who's worried about having committed the unforgivable sin almost certainly hasn't because the unforgivable sin is a stubbornness and rebelliousness of heart that refuses to follow Jesus. So if you're worried, if you're worried about falling away, 
I, I'm just going to tell you, go back to Jesus. Get in the book. Look, look to Jesus. Christians stink. Churches mess up. And I mean, our church mess is going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. And if I haven't disappointed you yet, it's just because you don't know me well enough. Uh, the people I love the most, I disappoint the most. That's how we all are, isn't it? But Jesus never will. Jesus will never fail you or disappoint you. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. If you've been a Christian, follow Jesus and keep following him. If you were a Christian and you're doubting, Go back to him. He will receive you. And if you've never followed him, turn from your sin and trust in him and follow him. Next, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Um, when I was in college, I, uh, I was in a secular college environment, and there were all these questions being raised about the faith, about philosophy and all this stuff. And what I realized is this principle from Proverbs. Do we have that, Proverbs? Yep. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So someone may think, seem like, oh my gosh, this is irrefutable proof. And then you realize, oh no, it's not. There's a whole other set of questions and things that, Go against what this person has said. And you think, you've got all these questions about Christianity. You've got questions about creation. You've got questions about miracles. You've got questions about the problem of evil. You've got questions about fill in the blank. Doubt your doubt. Ask yourself, is this doubt, is this doubt worth believing? Next. Be patient with doubters. Be patient with doubters. Uh, Jude 23 says, have mercy on those who doubt. We live in a toxic, a toxic environment for faith. It's a miracle any person stays with Jesus in this environment because everything that comes at us on our phones, on our devices, on our laptops, on our tablets, on our TVs, everything is coming from a place that says none of this is real, none of the Christianity, you know, that, that this can't be real, that we are inundated with these messages that say what we believe can't be true. And so if someone's wavering a little bit, have some compassion and have some patience. Have mercy on those who doubt. Um, if if uh, you're doubting or if someone you know is struggling, there's a book um, published by the Gospel Coalition called Before You Lose Your Faith. And I have one copy. If you want it, you can, you can have it after. I'll give it to you after church. Um, and Ian's story, is in, it was an article on the uh, Gospel Coalition website that um, is now an article in this book as well. And uh, it says, before you lose your faith, deconstructing doubt in the church. 
So if you are doubting, if you're doubting, or someone you know is struggling, um, maybe pick up this book. And if you want this copy, first come, first serve, you can have it. Next, pray the prodigal's home. Pray the prodigal's home. Prodigals often return home. Ian did. Maybe you were a prodigal and you came home. Seasons seem like forever. But you look back and you say, really, that wasn't that long. In the scope of a lifetime and especially in the scope of eternity. Pray the prodigal's home. Be faithful to pray for those in your life who are struggling, who are doubting, who are wandering. And God will honor those prayers. Next. Read 1 John. Read 1 John. Now, I'm not saying you have to do, well, you should follow Jesus. I mean, you really should do all these things, but I'm just trying to give you ideas, okay? I'm trying to give you ideas. 1 John was written to a group of people whose church had just split because a group of people walked away from the faith. And these people were reeling. They were, they were like, what just happened? And John, who wrote the book we're studying, the Gospel of John, wrote the epistle, 1 John, to help us and to help Christians be assured of their salvation. And maybe as you've been hearing this message, the questions kind of come in your mind, well, does, I mean, can you lose your salvation? I mean, does Pastor Danny believe you can lose your salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. Those whom God saves, he secures. Those whom he pr- provides for, he protects and preserves. But Scripture also does have some of these warning passages. And what those warning passages do, they're like us with our kids. Get down. Don't do that. Stop touching that. Put the knife down. Put the scissors down, right? These are warnings. These are God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us to bring us back. 1 John is one of the ways God does that. Finally, more theology, not less. More theology, not less. You would not let your kids eat Skittles and ice cream and think that they were going to be healthy. So why would you think spiritually that you could survive on a diet of superficial, sweet inspiration that doesn't actually give you the meat? You need to get into the scripture. That doesn't, now, that doesn't mean you got to read Thomas Aquinas's Summa. You know, like none of you probably will ever read that, and that's totally, totally fine. But it does mean that you need to lean into what the Bible teaches. And here's the number one way you do that. The number one way that God designed for us to be shaped into the image of God. It's not your personal quiet time, as important as that is. It's not your personal time with the Lord. It is not as important as that is. It's not your small group Bible studies, as important as those things are. It's not your summer book club, as much as I really hope you'll grab the book in the foyer on the way out. It's not the things we normally associate with what we call discipleship, as important as all of those things are. God has designed us to be formed and shaped in the context of the local church. And so one of the best things you can do 
is lean in to being together. And I'm preaching to the choir because it's Memorial Day weekend, Sunday at 5 p.m., and you're here. All right, so what this means is not that you need to hear it, but you need to tell your friend who isn't here, where were you? Nicely, right? Lean in. Lean in. I want to ask you all to lean in. It's going to be a weird summer. It's a weird, it was a weird day, right? Time change. I've never done night church before on a regular basis. But I think, I think God's doing something. And you're going to be out of town some. I'm going to be out of town some. But I want to ask you, if you are in town, that you will be here. And I want to ask you to invite your fellow members of your church family to be here. And to lean in to what God is doing with our church at this time and in this season. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, by your spirit, I ask you to shape us and form us into the image of Christ. I thank you for uh, the joy of being together. I thank you for uh, New Hope Church and their uh, letting us use their, their amazing facility. And Lord, I, just, I thank you that um, we, we get to be together and Thank you that you preserve those that you call, that you secure those who you save, and that we would all be found to be following you, to not stumble over the rock, but to stand on it. And I pray this over each of us, each family, each, each kid here, each kid over in the kids area, that our families, our kids, our church would faithfully follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.